My name is Brendan O'Connor. I'm a professor here at the US Studies Centre and at the University of Sydney in the Government and International Relations Department. It's a great pleasure to have Walter Russell Mead with us today, uh, truly one of America's leading thinkers uh, on foreign policy and the effects of domestic politics on foreign policy and a, a really broad historical kind of suite. I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land that we're on, uh, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation that the University of Sydney is on, and acknowledge elders past and present. Walter Russell Mead is the Ravenel B. Curry Distinguished Fellow in Strategy and Statesmanship at the Hudson Institute. He's a regular, he has a column for the Wall Street Journal, which I'd encourage you to read. His uh, book reviews for the for foreign affairs uh, are incredibly impressive in terms of the amount of books you get through every issue uh, and summarise for us mortals. Uh, he's also a prof he's the James Clark Chase Professor of Foreign Affairs and Humanities at Bard College in New York. He's also the author of five books, on my understanding. I've got four of them in physical copy, and I look forward to him signing one of them. And in the latest book. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant. I, I read it online, which I know is sacrilege, but um, you, you do what you can when you've got a tight deadline. But I look forward to getting a copy of that. And many of the people watching this or in the room would have come across Walter Russell Mead's work, particularly if they'd run into me as a student, um, particularly his, his great book, Special Providence. So where I want to start with a question is sort of start from the kind of theory of your four traditions of the world that you outline in Special Providence and relate it to someone that people seem to have an insatiable interest in, if not um, an insatiable admiration for, and that's Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. When many people saw Trump's sort of uh, campaign speeches and debates in the early presidency of Trump, many commentators just saw chaos. Where you provided in your 2017 foreign affairs article, the Jacksonian Revolt, a model, a theory, an approach at looking at Trump that saw some coherence, as I said, where others saw chaos. So maybe uh, with the advantages of hindsight, you can tell us what the Jacksonian Revolt was and also to what degree over his four years as president did Trump behave as a Jacksonian president? Okay, well, <clears throat> as soon after uh, Trump uh, was sworn in, I got a, I was looking at my phone, I got a text. It said, hi, this is Steve Bannon. Can we talk? And I thought, okay, which one of my friends is pranking me here? Uh, but a little bit of investigation that actually did turn out to be a text from Steve Bannon, who was then in the White House. Um, and so I said, fine, let's let's talk. And over a series of phone conversations, he told me that he had taken Donald Trump to the grave of Andrew Jackson. And um, uh, Steve had persuaded, Bannon had persuaded Trump to hang a picture of Andrew Jackson, a portrait in the Oval Office. And if you looked at at television coverage or whatever in the Oval Office for the next four years, you'd, you'd see that portrait. Well, Bannon was a little bit uh, surprised when I told him uh, uh, that actually I'd voted for Hillary Clinton and that while I might have studied Jacksonianism, that d didn't necessarily mean that that was exactly where I fit on the political spectrum. But the, the concept, Jacksonian populism, 
is a very old political tradition in the United States. Um, Andrew Jackson was uh, an early president of the United States. As a young boy during the Revolution, he was captured by the British. A British officer ordered the 13-year-old POW to shine his boots, to black my boots, boy. And Jackson refused. The British officer cut him across the forehead with a saber, giving him a scar that would win him many votes over his lifetime, a very valuable line on his resume, so to speak. And Jackson, uh, Jackson was, was a populist who was against establishments. He, at the, um, the movement that he founded abolished property qualifications for the vote in American states, abolished the establishment of religion, which we still had in Massachusetts and Connecticut as, as late as the 1820s and 30s, and generally um, spoke for a, a, you know, the, the common man. He also fired all the government's bureaucrats. We didn't have a lot of bureaucrats in the US government, but before Jackson, the American Civil Service was kind of lifetime appointment. You got in, you stayed in. Um, he introduced the concept of rotation in office or the spoil system by which every incoming president would be able to name every, hire every single employee of the federal government, including the postmasters in every town in the United States, which meant for the first time that American political parties had the financial basis for a for a mass movement because there were enough people there who really wanted their side to win the next election. Well, Jackson was expansionist in foreign policy. He absolutely, um, uh, he resented foreign powers. He, the, in um, some people in Sumatra had acted with disrespect to the American flag. He sent a US Navy vessel to the coast of Sumatra to shell it. France was refusing to pay its, its debts from seizures of American ships during the Napoleonic War. He dispatched the American Navy headed for France. And, and as a result, the French Parliament found the money to pay their, their American debts and so on. These things were very popular. But he never actually, as president, started war. He managed to mobilize a sort of sentiment of public nationalism, yay America, but he didn't get himself involved in any war. So to some degree, I think we can see Trump as following more or less in this tradition of strong nationalism, strong sense of yay America, boo everybody else, we're number one, the job, of the, you know, America first, all of this is right out of the Jacksonian playbook. So to some degree, I think Trump showed us a, one of the forms that this Jacksonian tradition can take. Andrew Jackson, in contrast to Donald Trump, I should say, was actually uh, an extremely thoughtful and careful statesman. Uh, he was very intelligent at a time when few people had been to college. He had a law degree, even though he had to work his way through college as an orphan. Was a you know was a more successful businessman than Donald Trump, and had been a very successful military leader, including defeating the British at the Battle of New Orleans in 1815. So I would not say that Trump was Andrew Jackson or was equal to Andrew Jackson, but the political tradition that informed Jackson very much did inform Donald Trump. 
And he was a lawyer as well, wasn't he? And, yeah. and like to say he'd never read a law book as part of his right. kind of uh, sort of anti-intellectualist populism. When you, when you think about the kind of toughness approach, I suppose, often portrayed by the Jacksonians, this, is, this often goes across well at the rally. It comes across well on television and maybe on Twitter. But toughness doesn't give you a solution to complex problems like global warming or some of America's more sort of difficult relationships around the world. So the, there are clear limits to it as a as toughness as a, as a strategy to, to foreign problems and foreign adversaries and allies. Fair enough. But I would also say that neither does moderation provide a solution to many of these problems. So that, you know, strategic patience has not helped us much with North Korea. Uh, our, you know, the policy for 20, 30 years of sort of patience before China didn't necessarily solve things either. So what one has to do, I think, as a, as a, a, a leader, a political leader, a foreign policymaker, is you can't say, oh, it's always right to be understanding and patient, or it's always right to be tough, or it's always right to be anything. You actually have to look at each situation on its own merits, understand what your goals are, understand also the politics of your political base and its relationship with the rest of the country. And then you have to kind of you, with all of those things in mind, you have to try to design a strategy that you will that will maintain your political authority at home, but achieve at least enough of the results that you need overseas to allow the country to go forward. It's not easy, and in fact, I would say the majority of political leaders generally don't succeed very well at integrating these approaches. Last Jacksonian question. You've talked about the Jacksonian revolt of people in recent times who have been sold a story about globalization leading to greater prosperity really across the world and certainly across the American Midwest and elsewhere. How does the sort of technocratic class that put forward some of these ideas get some of its credibility back to make arguments in favor? of democracy or to increase trust about information in the United States, that you, I think you've put some of the blame for the technocratic class and its theories and what I've read of your work. How does it build its trust back? I mean, obviously, admitting to some mistakes might be a useful starting point, but beyond that, what, what are the actions that the technocratic class of America could make to uh, appease some of this revolt that occurred? I'm not sure that it can. Um, you know, I think... Um uh, the trouble is that um, in, in Western industrial societies, I think around the world, we've developed a, a model that, that comes to us out of the early 20th century in America. We call it the progressive movement, where you have the very rich, the mass of the people, and then this kind of enlightened stratum of managers and technocrats who in the interest of the general good, following the dictates of social science, make wise decisions that limit the greed of the plutocrats, but also sort of uplift and control the aspirations of the, of the rest. That worked in one way when the average person might have had eight years of, of primary and middle school, and that was all the education they had. It, but when you have a population which does not feel much need for expert guidance, 
it's a very different position that you're in. And which, of course, can also go to Dr. Google for a second opinion when they don't like your opinion. And when, in fact, they can find an almost infinite variety of experts on an infinite variety of platforms saying virtually everything you can think of. So I don't think we're going to return to that era where the, the, the people in the white coats would have this, have this special expertise that everyone would defer to. I think what we're actually going to have to do is begin to, to get back to some old-fashioned con old concepts like leadership so that uh, you're, you're not relying on your, your authority as, an, as a credentialed expert, but you're actually getting people to follow your lead by winning their trust. And that's going to that's going to require a very different kind of education, because the the technocratic education. I don't know what it's like in Australia. I just say that the longer someone spends in an American university setting, the less able they are to communicate effectively with the average person. The more when they write, it tends to come out as academic jargon. Also, the more they are sort of socialized into, try, into, into speaking with highly credentialed peers rather than those idiots out there in the cheap seats. And, um, and there's a kind of an ideological formation that takes place as well. Uh, that worked reasonably well when the technocrats could actually, you know, had enough inherited authority to run things. It won't work now. And we're going to have to, I think a lot of our institutions are going to have to change the way they teach, what they teach, and what kinds of personality development they support if we're going to continue to have a society which is led by people who have at least some clue about what, what they're doing. The Republican Party is obviously tapped into that sense of certain particularly white working-class Americans feeling condescended. Many people overseas, though, look at the Republican Party, and you can see this in presidential ratings that really go back to Reagan, that Republicans in general in Western Europe, Australia to some extent, uh, aren't particularly popular, and there is an increasing sense from the outside that the Republican Party is going in a direction that it's hard to understand what's going on with its you know, problems over electing a speaker, claiming it's not maybe going to raise the debt ceiling. You're, I know you're going to be, as a student of history, you're going to quick to tell me that parties have had very rupturous moments in American history, of course. We had a civil war, what can be more rupturous? But from the outside, I think that is one of the things that people are constantly not just fascinated in Trump, but well beyond Trump to the modern Republican Party at present and saying, what is going on with this party? Is it involved in some kind of crack up? Is there some kind of uh, tendencies in the party that are almost sort of leading it to sort of self-destruction? Or are you more sort of sanguine about the modern Republican Party today and say, well, things like this have happened in the past and that will find its way? Well, first, let me just underline I'm not a Republican, so I'm speaking from the outside here. Um, but I noticed one thing in your, in your question. You said here, you know, in the outside world, Western Europe and Australia, people think blah, blah, blah. Well, All right. Most of the okay. Yeah. yeah. All right. But again, Trump was incredibly popular in India. 
All right. That's a lot more people than Australia. I'm sorry if this is news. When I was, was in Indonesia last spring talking to people, the nostalgia in Indonesia for Trump was strong. So, you know, the idea that sort of upper middle class affluent countries that are somewhat out of touch with world opinion think re American Republicans are out of touch with world opinion is not as cogent to criticism as some people might think. Um, and the fact that the sort of world news media has 10 million nerve endings in Europe, but three in India, you know, and two, one in Indonesia and so on means that our perception of world opinion is fundamentally flawed. And so in that case, it's sort of one blind man criticizing another when the received opinion of the liberal West criticizes the Republican Party. In my view, they're, they're both seriously off course. Mm -hmm. and, and, and simply polemics between the two of them are not going to get anybody anywhere. But again, I, you see this, I think, in the Biden administration that the idea that... Um, that governs them is that before Donald Trump came along, the world was on a good course and American foreign policy was on a good course. And then Trump came and messed everything up. And so the job is to restore that good direction, that right direction. And that once we do that, if we can keep Trump from being reelected, the world will sail serenely on. But nothing could be farther from the truth than this, all right? That um, the world order was in crisis around 2014 uh, when the West basically responded to Putin's invasion, first invasion of Crimea with a complete moral and political collapse. Um, uh, the world moved from the post-Cold War era into a pre-war era. And ever since then, world tensions had been growing significantly worse. Uh, opposition to the current international order uh, led by China, Russia, and Iran had been becoming more effective. The world order itself was, the governance was failing. Uh, Trump's election was not so much a cause of disorder, though disorder did follow from the election. It was a manifestation of the rot. Nothing but massive political failure could have brought a man like Donald Trump to the White House. And so this idea that we're engaged in a great restoration and things will be fine if we can just get back to the pre-Trump status quo is exactly the kind of destructive illusion that characterized what I would consider a generational failure of Western foreign policy leading up to our current rather distressed state where we are sitting around wondering, like, will Chi Taiwan be attacked by China in the next three years? This is not a good place. And also, you know, wondering, do we have enough ammunition for Taiwan after what we've been sending Ukraine? Right. That we are even asking this question is such a massive indication of utter elite failure not just in the United States, but in other Western countries, that for the elite to sort of narcissistically talk about how terrible Trump is, is a manifestation of people who refuse to learn from facts.
It's horrifying. It's terrifying. And this is what needs to change. Yeah, I suppose in this country, I would argue that both of the major political parties cling on to a version of America that you are arguing is gone, a sort of America that leads a liberal internationalist world order, or might, you might have written about, is Wilsonianism. Clearly, Wilsonianism isn't very popular, as you say, in India or in most of the world. Uh, as you've written, Wilsonianism isn't something that people are crying out for more of. Clearly, not a lot of, a lot of people in America are opposed to a Wilsonian foreign policy. But in Australia, that's how foreign policy decisions, particularly those directed at China, are often justified, is that we will help America get back to the America we like. The liberal internationalist America is the one that we want in our foreign policy, and that justifies what we will be doing with America in regard to sort of China. If that is no longer real, what is the sort of ethical path for American foreign policy that allies can hold on to, to say, okay, this is why we sign up to this block as and maybe opposing this other block? Well, I th first of all, the idea that many countries actually depend on ethics to determine their foreign policy, I think is probably, um, it's an interesting idea. Yeah. Um, in the rhetoric, though, I mean, it tends to be... Oh, oh uh, you yeah, mean in the self-serving lies that they dish <laughs> out to fool stupid people? You're talking about that rhetoric? Well, in the self-justification. And, and university professors, I yeah. should add. Yeah. Um, no, look, here's the thing. Do you want to be in a world that is led by China or a world that is led by the United States? Um, in most of Asia... There's very little doubt as to which two you prefer, even if you think the United States is a cesspool of white supremacy and capitalism, because you would prefer power going to a distant maritime republic, which has no ability to occupy you and diminish your independence, than to a neighboring superpower, which has the ability to pretty much end your functional independence and shape your decision making. This is what most of Asia is not going to be convinced by Western airs and graces about the moral superiority of Western civilization. They just aren't. Perhaps they should be, but they won't be. They will not make decisions on that basis. And nothing we can do or say will change that reality. Even so, we are seeing a massive shift away from China driven essentially by fear for national security. Um, now, that, does that mean that we should abandon ethics? Absolutely not. Does that mean that we should abandon traditions of individual liberty and concern for the rights of, of every person? No, it doesn't. But we don't do those things because we win foreign policy triumphs because of them. We do those things because they are right and they are, it's essential in our own internal culture and cohesion for us to do those things in order to continue to function. Yeah, I mean, in God and Gold, you sort of focus on that sort of Anglo-American tradition where there surely is a lot of hypocrisy in it, but the want to present the Anglo-Americans as the, as the side of rights and righteousness and the, and the opponents is, is something sort of akin at times to evil is the strong, has been a strong tendency 
in the rhetoric of, of, of right. American foreign policy as I think most people see right. it around the world. Right. And again, this partly was due to the fact that the center of the Cold War was, was in Europe. Was, the Cold War, while it certainly had Asian dimensions, was primarily a struggle over the future of Europe between the United States and its allies and the Soviet Union. And in that, and so the way to build the NATO alliance and to bring European countries into, uh, you know, alliance with the United States and to create a basis in America of political support for the Cold War, all of these things work together with giving a heavily, though never exclusively, Wilsonian flavor to American foreign policy. But an Indo-Pacific foreign policy will not and cannot work that way. Because we'll, while many people would argue that Wilsonian values are universal, and perhaps they are, there are many, many people in the Indo-Pacific who don't think that they are and won't make decisions based on their assessment of Wilsonian things. So I had a, a conversation with a very, very senior person in the world of Indian politics who said to me, look, if, you know, if what you want to, if your foreign policy is about helping India defend itself from China, we are with you. But if your foreign policy is about westernizing the world, we want no part of it. And that is real and not just in India. It's real in Indonesia. It's real in Vietnam. It's real in Thailand. It's real in Japan. In your most recent book, The Ark of, of a Covenant, you go into some really interesting historical research about the relationship between the United States and the formation of Israel and the Jewish sort of Jewish peoples. And what the chapter that I really sort of struck me was the chapter where in some ways you uh, pull apart some of the myths about Harry Truman's role and how important Truman was and you bring Joseph Stalin into the story in a way that I don't think all of us is quite that familiar with. So I thought, I thought you were, uh, you know, fascinating on this topic, and I wanted to, you know, you to tell the audience what uh, what the chapter argues. Well, you know, it's um, there is this mythology that basically Israel is kind of a sock puppet of the United States that American power was responsible for the emergence of the state of Israel, for the rise of the state of Israel, and that if America would somehow turn its back on the state of Israel, the state of Israel would kind of blow up and dry away and fly off. Um, and this myth is actually held by, by many people around the world, and it's sort of a, an inspire, inspirational element of, of some parts of Palestinian politics, where the hope is if we just wait long enough, Israel will go away and we'll ba be back to where we would like things to be. But if you actually look at the history, it's very different. For the first 25, 30 years of its existence, Israel had very little relationship with the U.S. The Eisenhower administration was much more pro-Nasser than pro-Israel. It's only after Israel wins the 1967 war and develops nuclear weapons that the U.S.-Israel alliance begins to form. And that, you know, so it's much more accurate to say not that Israel became great because it had an American alliance, it got the American alliance because it grew great. And one of the foundation stones of this myth 
of Israel as an American creation, an American sock puppet, and American dependency is the idea that it was Harry Truman's advocacy that, that allowed the Jews, overruling the State Department and so on in the U.S., that allowed the Jews to form the State of Israel in the first place. And this is, this is a sort of a legend, and it really is a legend, that in the U.S. both pro-Israel and anti-Israel people sort of collude at. Because in the Jewish community, there's this, this tremendous legend, uh, you know, of, you know, it's 1948. The fate of Israel hangs in the balance. The Arab armies are storming in. America's wavering in its support for Israel. Truman has refused to see the leaders of the American Jewish community. Chaim Weizmann, the great Zionist leader, has come to New York. Truman is refusing to see him. What will become of Israel? But then... Eddie Jacobson, little Eddie Jacobson from a small town in America, Truman's young, as a young man, Truman's business partner, bursts into the Oval Office and like Queen Esther in the Bible tells Harry Truman, save my people, and Israel is saved. Truman sees Weizmann and Israel is saved. This is a story that is literally told to young Jewish Americans in summer camp and so on as an example of how you know, this, you don't have to be famous. You don't have to be rich. Anybody can, you know, play a historical role in the story of the Jewish people. And it's told by anti-Zionists. This is an example of how relentless Jewish lobbying that never stopped, that pushed every button, forced Harry Truman against the better judgment of the State Department to embroil America in this costly alliance that has brought us nothing but pain and grief for the last 70 years. Those two legends are both, there's a little bit of fact in both, but in fact they completely mischaracterize the relationship. Because what really happens is in 1947 when the UN passes the partition resolution, the first two-state solution dividing um, British Palestine into an Arab state and a Jewish state, actually in a sense three Arab states because Transjordan had originally been part of the, of the British mandate. Um, the um, uh, Arabs reject it, fighting breaks out, the U.S. State Department puts an arms embargo on the Middle East. Now, the effect of this is to deny weapons to the Jews, but because the British are supplying Arabs with, army, with weapons, it tilts the military balance heavily toward the Arabs. And the, um, and the Zionist leaders come to Truman and say, you, got, you can't do this. It's like the arms embargo on Spain during the, the Spanish Civil War. It's a de facto assistance to the bad guys. State Department isn't moved. Truman isn't moved. Nothing happens. What does happen? The, well, the Jews are desperate for arms. They do an inventory. They've got 10,000 machine guns, which is nice, but not a lot. And they've got no tanks, no planes, no ships, nothing. And what are they going to do? They're scouring the world for arms. They smuggle a few from here and there, but really nothing. Until one day a guy walks into the uh, Israeli Jewish, they're not Israelis yet, it's before the Declaration of Independence, walks into the Jewish delegation in Paris. Says, oh, you're looking for arms? That's not a problem. Look, and starts handing out these brochures with pictures of all these fantastic weapons. Well, it turns out 
he is working with the Skoda Arms Works in Czechoslovakia, which is then under communist control. And the Soviets are allowing the Czechs to sell weapons to the Israelis, the Jews, for hard currency because the Soviets are planning to take over Czechoslovakia completely and the Czech economy is in terrible shape. The Czechs had asked, wanted to join the Marshall Plan. Stalin refuses to do that, saying, these weapons are your Marshall Plan. These weapons had been originally made for the Wehrmacht, which, of course, in May of 1945 went defunct. So they had these surplus weapons, many still with Nazi markings and swastikas on them. Stalin allows the... Uh, uh, not only does he allow the Czechs to smuggle these arms to, to Palestine, the first shipment arrives hidden under onion crates on a ship, uh, which allows the Jews to mount Operation Naxon, which is the big offensive to try to relieve Jerusalem, where the largest Jewish settlements in Palestine were under siege and were literally starving. And ultimately, this is what turns the tide of the war. Stalin did this primarily because he saw it as a way to break the British Empire in the Middle East, that if the British were seen to have failed to prevent the emergence of a Jewish state, this would destroy their political position in the Arab world, and indeed, to a large extent, this maneuver was successful. So that's, it was that, not Eddie Jacobson talking to Harry Truman. In fact, after Jacobson saw Truman and Weizmann saw Truman, American policy didn't change. Right up to Israel's declaration of independence, the Truman administration was asking the Israelis to delay their declaration of independence. Truman sent his personal offered his personal plane to anyone who would uh, try to arrange some kind of delay so that you could prevent an all-out war. They did this, by the way, largely because they thought the Jews would lose the war to the Arabs because they didn't know about the Soviet arms that were coming in. The CIA had not yet really achieved uh, its later levels of incompetence. But, um, and so the last thing that the uh, cabinet of the Yeshuv, the pre-independence Jewish authority in Palestine did before voting for independence was voting to reject America's request that they delay independence. So in this story, America plays a much smaller role and American Jews play an even smaller role. But there, and, and it's clear that, that decisions that Israelis make in the international arena are what drove the story. And, and I, my view, by the way, today is that if the United States woke up tomorrow and decided we didn't want our alliance with Israel anymore, we're, we're leaving the Middle East, we're not interested in Israel, I think a line of countries would form at Israel's door. The Russians, the Chinese, the Indians, and a number of others would be knocking at Israel's door, wanting to have that same relationship as Israel's closest partner that the U.S. now has. And by the way, the Arabs, the, the Emiratis, and the Saudis, and the Kuwaitis, and others would be cheering them on as they, as they went to the door. So this, this picture 
that the Jewish state simply exists as an American puppet state, and also that an American president can order an Israeli prime minister to do anything he wants, and they will have no choice but to do it, is not founded in history. It misrepresents contemporary reality, and it fundamentally misguides both friends and enemies of Israel to this day. Well, anyone hearing that story doesn't want to buy the book. You're not really into history, are you? I mean, that's <laughs> tremendous. I mean, obviously, there was a, a, a lot of arguments that you're pushing back on about the Israel lobby, Walton Mersheimer's book. You're making a case for a kind of a long-standing fascination with with sort of the Jewish peoples, with the history of uh, the Israelites to some extent. I mean, in the... Clearly, if there is this cultural affinity or at least a strong cultural interest, can this go hand in hand to say, well, there is a very successful lobby. It, it works on a fairly fertile basis of a population that you can have your argument and have some of these arguments about what are more effective foreign lobbies or on the behalf of foreign countries than others, that some lobbies are clearly better than others. Right. Well, what I would, I mean, you know, this is obviously true that some lobbies are better than others, uh, but... What I would say is that, first of all, if you actually, and this is part, what, of course, part of the book does, is look at the record of American policy vis-a-vis -vis Israel. And by and large, it's clearly realpolitik, much more than cultural affinity, that is guiding American policy toward Israel. So, you know, the, the, the American president who intervened most directly to help Israel was Richard Nixon, who, as we know from his private conversations that were that were taped, was a vicious anti-Semite, and who was also cordially loathed by the overwhelming majority of the American Jewish community. So that, you know, so again, he he made his decisions based on raison d'état. And the, rise, the development of the U.S.-Israel relationship is far better explained by perceptions of American foreign policy interest than by poll numbers rising and falling. Now, there are other ways in which the, popular, the broad popularity of Israel in American society plays a role, and even the broad unpopularity among some segments, that if you're a president and you want to communicate to voters about where you stand in foreign policy, Israel is a terrific issue. Because if you want to make the right happy today, in the old days, by the way, Israel used to be a left-wing issue, not only in the United States, but around the world. It was considered the great example of successful socialism for um, its first 25 years. And so the left was pro-Israel and the right was indifferent or even anti. Um, but in Australia, by the way, as well as in, the, as in Western Europe and the US. But if you want to signal, you know everyone is paying attention. So President Biden wants to tilt a little bit to the left of the Democratic Party. He can say, I condemn Netanyahu's creation or legitimization of settlements on the West Bank. And a whole section of the Democratic Party, yay, this is wonderful. Now we can try to get him to do a little more, but his heart's on the right side and we, you know, we're, we're winning. 
Or on the other hand, if you feel like, oh, I've, you know, I've gotten a little bit too far to the left, I need to like recenter myself a bit, you can say, Israel has the right to defend itself and America supports that right. Again, neither of those statements costs you anything in the world of foreign policy. You're not spending a dime. You aren't sending any troops. You're doing nothing. You are making a purely symbolic statement that has almost no impact on anything that happens in the ground. But you can effectively use this. So I'll give you an example of Trump using, using an Israel um, uh, policy thing that really worked with his constituency that um, Donald Trump, his sort of his core political stance was basically this: the emperor has no clothes, and I'm the only one with the guts to tell you that. And the establishment, they don't know anything, but they love getting fat salaries, and so they all tell each other how smart they are, but they all despise you, and they can't do anything. They don't know anything. All their credentials are bogus, and I'm the only one with the guts and the honesty to tell you this. All right. So now let's take a big decision that Trump made. Actually, not a very big decision, but one that was seen as a big decision to move the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Now, in the U.S., public opinion has long favored the idea of moving the, the embassy to Jerusalem. Um, you know, a lot of reasons, religious reasons, but also politically, every country in the world gets to decide where its capital is, except for one country. Why can Russia say our capital, if Russia moves its capital from Moscow to St. Petersburg, we'll all go there. The embassies will go there. Australia said Canberra is our capital. Nobody wanted to move to Canberra. The Australians don't want to move to Canberra, but every country in the world goes to Canberra. So why is Israel the only country in the world that can't say this is our capital? Well, okay, you can argue it either way. There, there are lots of arguments, obviously, that people make. But... In America, public sentiment wants the capital in Jerusalem. In 1992, Bill Clinton is running for president against George H.W. Bush, and he says, and look at this, George H.W. Bush hates Israel. He's, he's not moving the capital to Jerusalem. This is a scandal. Well, but Clinton gets elected, and then amazingly, the, the American embassy stays in Tel Aviv. Well, two years later, they realize they need to womp up the issue again. So Congress passes by a large majority a law that says the American embassy must be moved to Jerusalem. Except in the fine print down below, it says, if the president determines this is not in the national interest, every six months he can sign a waiver. So for the next six years of his administration, Clinton signs the waiver every six months. And then when Bush is running against Gore in 2000. The Clinton-Gore administration is violating American law by not moving the embassy to Jerusalem. This is terrible, terrible, terrible. And Bush gets elected and every six months for eight years signs the waiver and the embassy stays in Tel Aviv. Obama in 2008 is running for president. He tells AIPAC, Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. And then he gets elected and for the next, whoops, can you still hear me? Yeah. I'm sorry, I get too excited. <laughs> That's good. And so for the next uh, six months, is it, is it working? Okay, it's in this pocket. All right, so for the you know, next eight years, every six months, Obama signs the waiver, the embassy stays. 
Trump runs for president. He says, if I'm elected, I will move the embassy. And he announces he's moving the embassy. And then every Middle East expert in America, every professor of Middle East studies, every credentialed person, every ex-peace negotiator starts writing statements. If we move the embassy to Jerusalem, it'll be the biggest disaster in a thousand years. The entire Middle East will erupt. It'll make the intifada look like a Christmas party. On and on and on, over and over. Trump is an idiot. Only a fool would even think this would work. The embassy moves to Jerusalem and nothing happens. Nothing happens. In fact, thanks to the Abraham Accords, Trump comes out with more peace agreements between Israel and the Arab countries than any other American president ever. So for Trump, this issue, again, the American interest in where the, its embassy in, in Israel is, 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 is immeasurable to the naked eye. We had an excellent relationship with Israel before the embassy was moved to Jerusalem. The relationship continues good. All right, it just really didn't matter very much from the standpoint of national interest. But as a signaling device, it was dynamite because Trump was able to say, see, all the other politicians are dishonest. They will tell you anything to get elected. And the minute they're in, they will completely ignore it because they have nothing but contempt for you. And all the experts who you're supposed to respect and defer to and accept their wisdom have no idea what's really going on. The emperor has no clothes. That was the key to that decision. And if everything had worked out as well for Trump as the move of the embassy to Jerusalem, he would be president today and talking about running for a third term. <laughs> Not leave. Well, I'll ask the last question and then open it to the audience. So it'd be great if you've got questions at hand. So to sort of turn to another sort of area of, of controversy, you wrote in a Wall Street Journal column, uh, I think in favor of Nancy Pelosi going to Taiwan, saying that it's a, maybe a sign of American resolve. In Australia, we've had a debate around this issue, particularly an essay by a strategic analyst, Hugh White, who has argued that Chinese resolve on Taiwan is never going to be matched by American resolve or certainly Australian resolve. What would you respond to that in the sense of those of us who I think have the, the worry about escalation of that conflict, the conflict becoming a nuclear conflict? I mean, what, what are your thoughts on that strategic debate? Well, my, my basic thought is that if Australians understood the situation, the, the implications in Taiwan, they would be, there would be a lot more Australian politicians going to Taiwan, and that Australia's resolve on Taiwan would be immense. Because in fact, Australia's position in the world would change fundamentally and in very negative ways uh, if China were to succeed in conquering Taiwan. Why? Well, for one thing, it would no longer be reasonable to talk about the U.S. as a balancing power in Asia in the same way. Australia would be, in a sense, in a locked room uh, with, chi with China. And it would, in, in the past, your experiences of dealing with China have not always been so, so um, pleasant. And I think you would see a great deal more of that. But more than this, it wouldn't just be Australia whose position would fundamentally change. It's Japan's. I've met with very, very senior Japanese officials who tell me 
that if China were to take Taiwan, Japan really could no longer exist independently of China. Because if you think about where its trade routes go, if China, you know, uh, trade to the Middle East for oil, trade to Europe and the rest of the world for food and so on, those trade routes could, you know, would only remain open with Chinese permission. And if you think about where would Australia stand if Japan had to de-align from the United States and incline toward China as a matter of national survival, where does that leave Australia? And it, it seems to me that you're really back in the sort of 1941-1942 situation of an Asian hegemon is on the march and it's not clear who's going to be there for Australia. So it is Australia needs the United States to be committed to a peaceful future for Taiwan. Australia needs Japan to be independent, an independent great power which pursues policies in its own national interest. And Australia needs to do, in my view, and admittedly I'm speaking as an American and as a foreigner, but Australia needs to do everything in its power to support Japanese and American resolve and to make it easier for them to do something that Australia's most vital interests require them to do. That would just be mine response there. Well, you, you don't sort of balk a question. <laughs> I've got an opinion. People, so I think that's an invitation to everyone to ask a question uh, about the current Biden administration. I, I was going to get to that, but I'm sure you've got thoughts on that or um, Stephen. And there's a microphone as well. Uh, Professor, thanks. Professor, thanks for your uh, uh, remarks. Stephen Loosley, a visiting fellow here at the, the Study Centre. Um, could I focus on Donald Trump's base just momentarily and refer to the inauguration of President Jackson in 1829, where the Jacksonian supporters essentially stole most of the cutlery uh, and right through to the curtains, and they had an absolute contempt for the, the major players of, of both the parties and the, the Washington establishment. We see that again in much of the Trump base. I'm not only thinking of January 6th, I'm thinking more generally of the, of the Trump rallies and so on. Does this remain a feature of American politics post-Trump? As he fades, and he is fading at the moment, does the uh, widespread and deep contempt for both major parties, the bureaucracy, the media, and the like in the United States, continue to influence politics, particularly within the Republican Party? Well, actually, I would sort of hope it would be bipartisan in the sense that, you know, I think in a, in a republic, I know you're still a monarchy, I don't know for how long here in Australia, but in a republic, people normally don't have ex excessive deference for their rulers and betters. And I think a in a healthy democratic republic, the average person starts out from a position of skepticism about politics. And again, I wanna, I wanna underline something very important. 
we are coming off a period, an unprecedented, you know, an extraordinary period of 30 years of massive elite failure. Um, you know, what was free trade from with China going to bring the world? Democracy in China, a peaceful China, and prosperity, middle class prosperity, working class prosperity across the United States and other countries. That's what the credentialed experts, the foreign policy elite, and everyone else said free trade would bring. Now, clearly, they were wrong. I say this as someone who actually still believes in the economic theory of free trade and the economic benefits of trade, but clearly, the elite was utterly totally wrong. It had no clothes. All the wise men had no clothes. All right. Uh, what about Putin's Russia? Every American president since Putin took office has believed that they could find an accommodation with Putin. Even uh, Jake Sullivan talked about parking Russia. Um, all right. Fundamentally misread Russia. That's Russia and China. That's two of the big countries out there in the world. Um, so there is this, so people do not think that the, the, the foreign policy establishment is any good at its job, all right? And they shouldn't, honestly, all right? I believe that, you know, when you look at the record, our record, particularly with Putin, and in America it's bipartisan, George Bush's failure to respond to Putin's, effectively to Putin's invasion of Georgia in 2008, Barack Obama's calamitous failure in 2014, uh, set the stage for what we're going through today. Neville Chamberlain, on the last day, will rise up and condemn this generation of leaders for its appeasement, its folly, its narcissism, its lack of historical understanding or imagination. The American people, a lot of people should be angry about that. All right. Now, what I worry about more is where is the constructive leadership going to come from? Donald Trump could channel anger. In my view, he did not channel anything in terms of positive alternative. All right. And that's what we need. But you don't get that by going by saying, oh, Trump was so horrible and the old establishment was so nice. Please let me get back to Barack Obama. Please let me get back to George W. Bush. That's not an answer. And as long as the establishment continues to think that's an answer, they will only be stirring up more anger and bitterness. So. I, again, I think instead, what I find is, is, is in so many circles of academics and foreign policy people, everyone wants to talk about how terrible Trump is. And frankly, I could do as much of that as anybody else. Uh, but what nobody wants to say is, who opened the door to this? And what do we have to change? But more than that, here we are sitting, American generals are telling us that as early as 2023, and in any case by 2027, we may reach a place in the Taiwan Straits where China would believe that it had sufficient military superiority to be able to make that work. Iran is basically how far away from a nuclear test? Putin could send two engineers down to Tehran tomorrow, and within a very few weeks, they might be in position for a nuclear test. 
what's keeping him from doing it. I, I, I would imagine that's something he would well try before he would accept defeat in Ukraine. So we, have, we are stumbling into a world historical crisis, potentially. I'm not a prophet, I'm not telling these, but we have moved into a danger zone where things could happen like September 1939 or August 1914. We have slept walked into that. I want people to say, this, is, this leadership is not good enough. You people need to wake up and do better. The other thing I'll say is that, yes, the, the inauguration of President Jackson was a shambles. Um, actually, when I first moved to Washington, I had a party. Somebody researched the cocktail that was served at that reception, and we served it for this party. And I can tell you I thought maybe that was a mistake afterwards. But um, uh, in any case, American democracy survived it. Most people would say that the net effect of Jacksonian democracy in the long term was to strengthen the American Republic and American democracy. So yes, I think it's still here. Yes, I think it still has some work to do. No, I don't think Donald Trump is the leader we or Americans deserve. Another question. We've got just a time for one more. Someone, the many things that have been covered. Yes, in the middle there. That's the microphone. Hi, just thank you very much. Um, as somebody fairly naive, you mentioned Australia standing up and, you know, going into bat in a way, re-Taiwan. Uh, you kind of think these things happen behind the scenes that America, Australia, Japan are talking about this at what sort of levels, all sorts of levels sort of every day of the week. We see more American troops in Darwin and clearly stepped up our engagement to, to what extent am I being naive in a way? Do we, how do we step up in Taiwan? Is it, is it taking back the, you know, we'll, we'll lose all our wine exports, all our wine oil exports. How, how do we manage that? We might take two questions because we've got a lack of time. We've got a question there, so we have two, two together and then keep you on schedule. Thank you. Uh, I also got a question about uh, what you mentioned, the failure of the American politics. I want to know what's the root of that. Is this because it's failure response to Russia, to China's aggression, because American national strength is in a slope, or is it simply because there are some other momentos that is stopping the administration to doing so? Good questions. Uh, quickly on the, Iran, uh, the uh, uh, Taiwan and Australia question. I think you know every country needs to decide what's best, and it's clear that Australia, Japan, and the United States are working together, and India for that matter, though less on Taiwan than on some other things, and Vietnam, and now we see the Philippines. When I was in Canberra, there was a large Indonesian delegation there interested in deepening its military cooperation with Australia. So a lot is going on, and, and this is good, um, but I'm saying, Australia, you know, if, if you want AUKUS to work and to get the full benefit of AUKUS, you need to give the impression that you really are on the team as opposed to, well, we'll let you take the heat from Taiwan and we'll sell wine. Now, I don't think you should, you know, sort of destroy your economy out of some kind of abstract thing. One has to use prudence and judgment for all of this. But in general, even with the Chinese, it's better to show courage and resolution than to give the impression that if intimidated, I will yield, because we know what that's a recipe for. 
uh, on this question of why did so many people get so much wrong. I think there are a lot of reasons. I think one is that after 1990, the end of the Cold War, there was this wave of euphoria. You know, the sort of history is over, America won, let's all kick back. Nothing really bad can happen. That was, you know, so that we, and we kind of mentally disarmed. And we, you know, oh yes, history is full of terrible things. The wars, the massacres, the pandemics, all of these terrible things. And thank goodness we've gotten to a higher stage. And now we can work, I mean, you know, you want to, it's maybe a little cruel, but not totally unfair. You think about our policies in Afghanistan, the West policies in Afghanistan uh, for the last 20 years. I mean, you know, we had a really elaborate set of fabulous things going on in Afghanistan. You know, economic development, rural development, school for women, development of civil society, all these wonderful, wonderful, very elaborate and difficult forms of social engineering and improvement. But we missed one little tiny detail, which was the problem of winning the war. One small, insignificant little detail. All right? And in some ways, I think that is a, not a terrible metaphor for the last 30 years of global Western policymaking. Oh, we're going to make the world so much more just, so much more egalitarian, so much greener. We're going to promote, so, you know, all, and these are all great things. Don't get me wrong. I am not saying these things are wrong, but we were neglecting one tiny little detail, the balance of power. Small, insignificant. You, you couldn't even notice it if you weren't looking for it, all right? But if you get that one tiny thing wrong, it doesn't matter what else you're doing. It doesn't matter. If, America, if the West had lost World War II, no one would have cared about the Atlantic Charter or Franklin Roosevelt's ideas for the United Nations. And I think we had a generation that went to sleep. Um, that's, one, uh, that's a big reason, I think. And then as the, the re cold reality slowly began to creep in, all kinds of people fought it. Because first of all, who likes to admit you've been fundamentally wrong for 30 years on issues of great, that your entire career has been going in the wrong direction? Um, and also that all those people that you hated, those nasty people in the Pentagon and all of those people like that, while they might be wrong about everything else, were right about this and you were wrong. And nobody wants to admit that either. And there's always the hope. I mean, and I think still, even when President Biden took office, if you look at what the Biden people wrote about and said, and I, I spoke to a number of them, um, they believed that when Biden came in, what America could do was we could park Russia, we could, get, we could sort of shut Japan, uh, Iran up with the JCPOA so things would be quiet there. And then with everything quiet in Europe and the Middle East, we'd have no trouble focusing on China. And we could do that without seriously raising the defense budget and so on, because we could, we could pivot to Asia and downgrade all these other things. But it turned out that 
Russia didn't want to be parked. Iran was not interested. And in fact, that these countries saw no reason why they should help America to focus on China. But actually, they want to disrupt our strategy. As they say in military schools, the enemy gets a vote. And so now we find ourselves facing this much more complicated international crisis. The world that the Biden administration is in looks nothing like the world the Biden administration thought it would be dealing with. And I think so, you know, we're still coming up a learning curve. I just hope we get up fast enough. That's why I do things like this. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. And we can get hands together. Thanks, Walter, for your time, your breadth of knowledge, and uh, and encourage everyone to get the new book and the older books, and uh, and uh, they can follow you regularly in the Wall Street Journal. Great. Where my column this week is about Australia. <laughs> okay, looking forward to it.